0: Hello, and welcome to Michigan and Other Mayhem, the show about Michigan, murder, mysteries, histories, and other mayhem from around the world. Your hosts are Allie
1: and Jen. Okay, Jen, let's do this thing. Allie. Allie. How you doing? Yes. (sighs) I thought that would never, like, happen.
0: Oh, I know. Please don't start this shit again.
1: Yeah. (laughs) Can you hear me? Good.
0: Yeah, I can hear you. Can you hear me well?
1: Yep. Okay.
0: So what's going on today?
1: I got a case. I'm going to say I read 54 pages of court documents. Damn. Uh, A little confused after I read all that. Okay. Then I had to find a website that told me what the hell happened. Okay. Okay. So that's what I've been doing the past couple days. No. What have you been doing?
0: I have been looking up the I65 killer. There's like at least six women that were attacked, but they have for sure DNA on like three of them.
1: Hmm, interesting. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You want to go? You want to go first or you want me to go first?
0: You go first if you don't mind.
1: Okay. okay. So mine's The Creek Murder, Arland Winthrow. So Arland was age 17. He was living in Ypsilanti, Michigan. He was from West Virginia. His family relocated here for jobs in the car industry.
0: That's pretty common.
1: And Arland was known to be popular in his community and worked at the local Ford plant on October 19th, 1966. He went outside to move his vehicle from the driveway and he was never seen again. How old was he? 17.
0: And he goes outside to move his car out of the driveway and nobody ever sees him again. Yep. That's terrifying.
1: Right. Yeah. On October 20th, 1966, his body was found near Port Huron. He was in a creek, nude, a noose around his neck, and rope around his feet. His cause of death was blunt trauma to the head. This will get confusing later on. Okay. (laughs) Mm -hmm. This just... (laughs) Totally. Started to struggle. <laughs> well, as I got through it, I'm like, this doesn't all make sense. Okay. So then the autopsy also found a bullet to his head and that his fingers were dipped in acid.
0: Oh, my God. It sounds like he was tortured.
1: Yeah. So he couldn't be identified. There was a missing person case open for Arland and. And. 4 days after his family would hear of this you know guy being found in Port Huron and they would go up and then they would find out that it's Arland. Oh no. Interesting that I did read in the an old Ann Arbor newspaper <laughs> That on October 24th, a man was found and it said in the newspaper near there or near the creek. It said near there. And so I'm not sure if that's near the creek or near Toledo because they say he was found in Toledo, Ohio. So very confused on that. What made this man, Joseph Pugh, interesting is that he too was from West Virginia and was found nude feet tied and a noose around his neck. Oh my God. The record Eagle Traverse city newspaper back then reported that the Washtenaw County police discounted the similarities and said the case of Ireland was at a standstill as of November 2nd, 1966.
0: Well, shit.
1: <laughs> so like they're not connected and I'm going to let you know. Yeah, that you'll never hear this name again. Like the, the, they, the, n- they never, never tie. Yep, never bring this Joseph Pew back up. But I'm saying I see similarities.
0: Yeah, a lot. I don't.
1: But I'm not a police officer, so I guess I don't know. All
0: right. Well, it doesn't mean you don't know. It means you don't agree with
1: them. <laughs> I don't agree. I don't yeah. agree at all. No. <laughs> so on November fifteenth, nineteen sixty six. Ralph Nuss would be arrested by Washtenaw County sheriffs on a charge for gross indecency between males, which was unrelated to Arland. Okay. Ralph did know Arland from the local hangout. Ralph, age 30, was a prison administrator at the time. And was known to go to these hangout spots to pick up teenage boys. Oh. He, he was known to use aliases at the time when he would meet boys and try to get them to have sex with him. Okay. Ralph made many friends, most teenagers, who seemed to hang around with him more because, you know, you get free alcohol and stuff. They're there to party. It seemed.
0: And he's an adult who can provide them a place to party and some alcohol.
1: Right. During his talk with police after his arrest, Ralph admitted to killing Arland in October and another gentleman, Thomas Brown, on November 11th. Okay. In his statement, on the killings of arland he stated of killing arland he stated they had a few sexual encounters and on the last time arland fell asleep and he had thought he wanted pictures of him so ralph thought he wanted pictures of him tied up so he proceeded to tie him up arland woke up began struggling and ralph stated he threatened him with a gun he had.
0: Wait, he's naked and tied up in the bed and he's threatening people with guns?
1: Arlen, he has Arlen tied up.
0: Okay, and he has the gun or Arlen's threatening with the gun?
1: Ralph has the gun. Okay, sorry. Yep, so he has tied up Arlen. Okay. Arlen's struggling. Ralph goes, gets a gun, threatens him. Okay. He, t- he takes pictures of him. He took sexual advantage of him while he was tied up. That's right. And then thought he took things a little too far. And Arland would tell somebody about what happened. This is when he thought he would have to kill him.
0: Jesus Christ, no.
1: He stated he put Arland in the trunk of his car. Drove to the training center building of the federal corrections in Milan. What? Supposedly nobody's there. You know. Okay. Speaking. Pulled him out of the trunk and put him in the back seat of the car. He said he strangled him by placing a cord around his neck, and took his in our. Garland took his last breath as he was placing a pillow. Ralph was placing a pillow over his head. Oh, Jesus Christ. He put him back in the trunk, drove to a nearby stream, and threw him over the bridge after weighing him down with cement block.
0: What about the acid on the fingertips? Did he mention when he did that?
1: No, that was not mentioned. Okay. Not mentioned that he shot him. Oh, true.
0: What about the beating in the head, too, right?
1: Well, I'm assuming the trauma, oh, I mean, you threw him over a bridge. Okay, good point. So I'm thinking that's where that came from. So because he said he killed Arland on federal property, he was charged with first-degree murder in federal court for Ireland. And then he was also charged with the other man's murder, Thomas Brown, in municipal court for first degree murder. So now we're in two different courts. Okay. I feel like for some reason he rethought this. Like, it's not a good plan to tell them that he killed Arland on federal land. Okay. On, because on November seventeenth, nineteen sixty six, Ralph would change the place he killed Arland from the federal property to his home in Willis, Michigan.
0: Okay. So he's like, Well well, actually that's not what happened. It happened. Here. Yeah,
1: so there must yeah, there must be something there that I don't know.
0: Yeah, no, he probably doesn't want to go to federal court because you go to federal jail.
1: <laughs> so on jan- January oh, you know
0: Oh. You know, it might be is um, federally, we do have the um, death penalty and here in Michigan, we don't. Oh, maybe. That might be why.
1: So this, this gets so jacked up. So on January 10th, 1967, the U.S. attorney put in a motion to dismiss the charges for the murder of Ireland because now you didn't kill him in federal court. Or federal on federal land, yeah, so what he's trying to say. Uh, yeah. Okay. So now those charges are gone. On January thirteenth, Ralph's attorney filed a petition to have him declared a criminal sexual psychopathic person. Wow! For the Thomas Brown case. Okay, okay. so now Arlen's case. Yeah. Is no case right now. Dude, we we got rid of that because...
0: So they're not going to try him in Michigan then? They're like, oh, well, it's not federal. I guess we're not going to do anything?
1: You just got to wait. You got to wait. Um, okay. Because okay. this is how com- it gets bad. It gets so confusing and jacked up.
0: Okay. Okay.
1: So we're going to set Ireland aside and we're going to put in a petition This was a real statute at the time, a criminal, sexual, psychopathic person. The Washtenaw County prosecutor tried to have the petition dismissed, but Ralph's attorney provided three psychiatrists determination on February 6th, stating he was a criminal, sexual, psychopathic person. Wow. On March 14th, Ralph filed a motion for a speedy trial in both cases. Okay. But I said, where's Arlen's case? Because there really isn't one. Yeah. Okay. But this said, the document said he did it in both cases. The courts heard testimony from the psychiatrist and found that they agreed with them. And he was committed to the Ionia State Hospital. Okay. Now we'll take a little side.
0: Isn't it, a, it the mental hospital?
1: Yeah, that's one. mental. Okay. Okay. Yeah. And now we're going to take a little side step, and we're going to talk about. In 1968, the criminal sexual psychopath statute was repealed. Okay. And then we're going to jump a little further to 1973 when the Wayne County Courts ruled in another person's case that portions of the criminal sexual psychopathic statute were unconstitutional. And that person was released. So the separate case found that, hey, these things were unconstitutional and that person was released. That's going to be important. Okay. Because he's here right now in the Ionia State Mental Hospital for this statute. Okay. It went to the... So, and, you know, the court said it was unconstitutional. The person was released, but, you know, it went to the Michigan Court of Appeals, which ended up in 1975 agreeing with the lower courts. So, we all agree... All the courts agree this was unconstitutional. Okay. So we're going to jump back to 1973 when when they said that it was unconstitutional. Are you still with me?
0: I'm still with you.
1: Okay, because I, I go back and forth. But yeah. here, I think at this point we're going to just go forward, but it's just going to get confusing. Okay. But this is really crazy. I mean, I'm just shocked that this happened. So... On July 13th, 1973, Ralph was put on parole from the Ionia State Mental Hospital.
0: Okay. Because it's been repealed, right? That's why he's on parole? Yeah.
1: So he's on parole. Yep. And I don't understand. Like, I don't know what he did. Like, where did he go? I have no idea. I'm going to jump from 1973 to 1975. I have no idea what happened. I couldn't figure it out. So, on January 16th, 1975, the Washtenaw County prosecutor would authorize a previous warrant. So, previous, like way back in 1966, against Ralph for Arlen's murder. Wait, what? Yeah. So, remember when he asked for a speedy trial in both cases? Yes. Let's back up one more. He was charged in federal for first degree murder. That was dismissed. Then you hear nothing about Arland until supposedly Ralph files this motion uh-huh. for a speedy trial in both cases. Okay. But there wasn't two cases at the time, there was only one. Arland's was dismissed at the okay. time. Okay. So now in 1975, the prosecutor is going to activate that previous warrant on Arlen's murder. So we're in 1975, we're going to go all the way back to 1966's warrant, and we're going to arrest Ralph. Okay. Okay. You with me?
0: I'm with you. Okay.
1: Okay. On February 18th, 1975... Through March 11th, 1975, there was a preliminary examination on this case. Okay. Afterwards, Ralph's attorney would move to dismiss the case. Why? For Ireland because of lack of speedy trial, double jeopardy, and his guaranteed right to be free from prosecution based on the repealed criminal sexual psychopath statute.
0: Oh, shit.
1: Okay. On March 25th, the courts denied the dismissal and he was made to stand trial in Washtenaw County. Okay. Okay, but that can't be the end of it because Ralph brought the matter to circuit court to try to get it dismissed. So okay. September 15th, 1974, this was all, this was denied. Okay. This is where it all starts to get real confusing okay. because I was reading court documents. And so the court denied. And on October 6th, 1975, it was sent to the Michigan court of appeals. Okay. And on May 3rd, 1977. So we went from 75 to 77. Okay. The Court of Appeals reversed the circuit court's opinion. Denying Ralph's motion to dismiss.
0: Okay. Phew. I was
1: like, wait. <laughs> okay. Yeah, so- oh, don't worry. It's so confusing. Okay. They said section Section 8 repeal did not bar the prosecution of Arlen's case, but the delay between the date of offense and date of trial did.
0: Okay.
1: Okay. So see, this is where I start to get confused. I read it in the court document. So we denied it. And then now we're saying this, which would mean that, hey, he should be, it should be dismissed in my mind.
0: Okay. But just stick with me here, okay? Okay.
1: Worry, I found a website that I think told me the truth.
0: Okay, <laughs> okay something will happen.
1: Yeah, that we're not there yet, though. On June 14th, 1977, prosecutors filed with the Supreme Court of Michigan to allow prosecution. So they filed this paperwork, this today let me prosecute this guy okay they said when one balances all factors it is clear the defendant was not denied a speedy trial from 1966 to 1973 the delay was valid because he was institutionalized in the ionia state mental hospital by his own pes- petition no less
0: no shit <laughs>
1: The defendant, Ralph, never specifically demanded to be tried in the Arlen's case. Okay. Okay? So all of this tells me what. Like, I feel like I read all these court documents, way more confused than when I started. And I feel like this dude should have went to trial, right? Yeah. I don't know what in the heck I missed. And I mean, I re- re- read some of it twice. Okay. So then, yeah. this is where I just was like, screw this. I'm going to start Googling. Okay. And it's really hard to find anything on this dude. Oh, yeah. And I, I'm and I, yeah. Yeah, and I feel very bad because you don't see, like, Arlen, nothing. It's Thomas Brown, nothing. Oh, like, shit. you can't find nothing. But then I finally found phonology.com. Okay. F-O-R-N-O-L-O-G-Y. And I have absolutely no idea if they're telling me the truth, but this is what they said. Okay. They found on or they found that the law that no person designated as a criminal sexual psychopathic person could be tried for a crime after successfully completing treatment and being released okay so ralph could not be tried and they dismiss arlen's case for for not a speedy trial still confused here people
0: Because, yeah, okay. Because, yeah, he's saying, well, you didn't charge me right away. I didn't get a speedy trial, which I think is our third amendment. And and so, you know, you can't charge me. Because they charged him federally right away, and then they didn't charge him in Michigan right away. I'm thinking. I don't know.
1: I'm saying. Sorry. I'm saying that they're saying that. No person can be charged again for that yeah. criminal sexual s- that was treated and released if as a person named a criminal, sexual, psychopathic person. So I say he can't retry, they can't try him again because uh-huh. he was under the statue of the criminal sexual psychopathic person
0: yeah well maybe they put arlen's info underneath that one
1: maybe i have no idea so this is the deal here's the end okay february 5th 1979 ralph was released he was driven to a bus station And he was given a one-way ticket back to his home in Pennsylvania. It's his home state, I mean. His home state. Okay. So they sent him to Pennsylvania. And I find it, you know, kind of shitty that the same two, the two detectives that drove him to the bus stop Uh are the same two detectives that arrested him. Yeah, that's so shitty. Yeah. Like, this whole thing is jacked up.
0: Yeah, I can't believe in the end he was able to. I wonder what, in the. of course you don't know what happened after that because it would have to be in the news. And if he didn't do anything newsworthy, then you don't know about it.
1: Well, only thanks to Okay We know that they say. In 1991, he died at age 55. Wow. This whole thing is bothering me. Okay. You know, like, I feel like there's just holes. Like, why can't, why does nothing make sense? I mean, I took the time to read these court documents, which were confusing as hell. But it's like, why wouldn't you, like, this is drawn out? You're, this like fell off the face of the earth. Yeah. Within a court document.
0: Yeah. It took like 10 years or something.
1: Yeah. And I feel sorry for those families. Uh, and how, and how ridiculous that this guy, I mean, he had a long time. You're talking 1966 uh, to when he was released in 1979. That's quite a lot of time. Uh, um, but yeah, that, yeah, he didn't get charged for it.
0: I know Well, that he, although he did some time, like, I don't know. He didn't really do time for, I feel like, Arlen's murder.
1: Right. That's how I feel. Yeah. And I, I just wonder, like, what did you do when you left? Like, you did that? True. You were rehabilitated?
0: Yeah. No, know, maybe. Just Maybe. That was, doubt. Yeah. Well, just because that law was struck down doesn't mean that he wasn't guilty or that he wasn't a danger.
1: Right. Yeah. And I'm thinking they sent and they sent him to Pennsylvania. Ah, uh, okay. I have yeah. to look in Pennsylvania.
0: Well, I'm also going to tell you about someone who goes to jail repeatedly and then becomes a serial killer. Okay, go for it. Are you ready? Yeah, I'm my ready. Re- recently, um, even I think my next one is not in Michigan. My last few have not been in Michigan, but really, sh- you know, important stuff has been going down <laughs> in other parts of this country here. Okay, right. It is intriguing. <laughs> So, I got myself from Huffington Post, Indy Star, Vocal Media, Vocal.media.com, American Crime Journal. I actually looked at three different articles, and Courier Journal.com. So, in the late 80s, there was a man that was attacking, sexually assaulting, and attempting to murder or slash murdering women who worked in hotels along the interstate of I 65. And these women worked as motel clerks during the night shift and DNA was le- linked to the perpetrator of these crimes to Edward Greenwell. So Edward was born on December 9th, 1944 in Louisville, Kentucky. And at age 18 in January of 1963, Edward was arrested for armed robbery. So that's his first offense armed robbery. Three months later in April, Edward's convicted and he's sentenced to five years probation, two years reformatory school. So not a, not a big consequence, right? Ten months later, February 23rd, 1965, Edwards arrested for sodomy in Jefferson County, Kentucky. He's paroled in October of 1969. So he got four years for sodomy and probation for armed robbery. Mm -hmm, Right. Nine years later, 1978, Edwards' wife is in Vernon County, Wisconsin, and she's killed in a house fire. Don't know if Edward has anything to do with it, but it happens, right? Right. Edward remarries again in Kentucky two years later in nineteen eighty. So I he has some connection to Wisconsin, but I couldn't figure it out because that's where his first wife dies in nineteen seventy-eight, and that's where he's arrested again in nineteen eighty-two. And then again in the future, he's gonna be arrested in Wisconsin. So I couldn't figure it out, like you know, that's not where he grew up. Maybe he lived there for a little bit as a kid. Maybe that's where his wife was from when he they relocated there at one point. I don't know. So Edward's taken into custody and Vernon County, Wisconsin, Wisconsin for a burglary that happens in another state. Okay, So Allamackie County, Iowa is where the robbery takes place. And there's about five articles that list that Edward escaped police custody. And they all say, quote, in this time, end quote. But I couldn't find out, like, did he escape while in Wisconsin? Was it in transit? Was it once he gets to Iowa? Because literally every single article says in this time he escaped, I huh. know uh, so I was like nobody knows and so nobody can quote anything so they they just keep saying in this time <laughs> so Edward was sentenced to Anamosa state prison in Iowa in August of 1982 and he's released in December of 1983 and a second woman um, is married to Edward her name is Jenny Greenwell she does file for divorce in the middle of 1986 so early 1987 Vicki Heath is working night shifts at a clerk at a Super 8 motel in Elizabethtown, Kentucky. Vicki had grown up in Hardensburg, Kentucky. She was the mother of two grown children, a son and a daughter. Vicki had re- recently become engaged to her long-term partner, and she decided to work nights at the motel just to, like, make a little extra cash. So on February 21st, 1987, at 6.38 a.m., Elizabeth Town Police were called by a motel guest and they explained that they entered the lobby and found that it was like in complete disarray with a variety of items scattered about, like they're not able to find the clerk who's supposed to be working the front desk. And when the officers arrived, they believed the scene looked as if a fight took place. I mean, it was obvious there were items on the floor that had been, you know, on the front desk. Furniture was overturned. The phone had been ripped from the oh, wall. Wow. Yeah, I mean, this mess is so big that the original responding officer believes that maybe a group of individuals attacked each other, and they are afraid, like, maybe Vicki had gotten caught in the middle. Like, that's how much, you know, shit was around the room. So, unfortunately, her body was found behind the dumpster shortly after the scenes discovered, and Vicki had been shot in the head, and there were muddy boot prints leaving the scene of the crime, and they end at a set of tire tracks. So, an investigation revealed that the office had been robbed, and Vicky had been beaten and sexually assaulted before being shot and a bullet to a 38 handgun had been recovered and DNA evidence was found during the investigation but they don't have the ability to use it in the 80s so you know the case goes cold they don't have anything else so two years later on March 3rd 1989 Edward Greenwell attacks two women Margaret Peggy Gill she worked days at the Days Inn in Maryville, Indiana she was 24 years old at the time, and she was a student at Sawyer Business College. Peggy had worked nights at the inn for the last year and a half, hoping you know, to pay for school. And Peggy was described as being quiet and shy, and she was the youngest of four children. And she was living with her parents in a house nearby. And Peggy enjoyed baking contests. She was part of the Future Homemakers of America. She enjoyed cross-stitching. And the night of the murder, she left the house after making a birthday, after making birthday plans with her dad. And at work, Peggy clocks in, she attends her duties, and the last guest that she helped that had contact with her was around 1.30 in the morning. About a half an hour later, a guest enters the lobby and finds it empty. And after waiting for five minutes, he just literally gets pissed and drives off to another hotel. So Peggy misses her regular 5 a.m. update call, and her boss calls the police at 5.51 a.m. By 6 a.m., The police are on scene and they find guests in an empty lobby looking for a clerk to assist them. And at first, the police believe like maybe she got, you know, occupied somewhere else, you know, nothing's out of place in the office. So they don't really think anything's gone down. And at 630 in the morning, the manager finds that the cash drawer has been pried open and the $179 in cash that was supposed to be there was missing. So now they're like, oh, shit, maybe something did happen to her. Maybe it was a failed robbery. They came to, you know, rob her. Shit goes wrong. And then they grab her. So then they suspect suspect that maybe Peggy had been abducted. And they instruct her parents to wait by the phone in case she calls. And police officers then begin to do a full search of all the buildings, including this vacant wing. And at the point that is farthest from the office, at the end of the hallway of the vacant rooms, Betty... Peggy's body is found. She was found nude. Oh. I know, and I was just like, and she seemed like such a kind, nice person too.
1: Is is there no cameras? No, at this, this point,
0: is, no. It's the eighties. Everybody's just free balling. No cameras. Okay. Yep. She's found nude with her uniform neatly folded beside her. She had been sexually assaulted and suffered a cut on her shoulder. Her killer had shot her twice behind her ear with a twenty-two pistol. Now, fingerprints were lifted from the front office, but they weren't able to find a match in any of the databases. They compared them to employees. They compared them to former guests. No match. Well, hold on. Yeah.
1: She was shot. Yeah. In the hotel. Yeah. And not a single soul heard that shit.
0: Yeah, she was in the vacant wing. They took her, he took her all the way to the farthest end. Okay. Yeah. yeah. So, and it's like two o'clock in the morning, too. So, well, it was between one thirty and 2 is what they were they are guessing, at least that she was grabbed. So the same night, another woman was attacked and killed. So Jean Marie Gilbert, Jeannie, sorry, Jeannie Marie Gilbert was 34 years old at the time of her murder. She grew up in Indiana, had worked days as a bookkeeper, and she worked part-time night, night shifts at a Days Inn in Remington, Indiana. Jeannie was also a student at St. Joseph's College. Her son was 12 years old, and Jeannie had a 17-year-old daughter. The night that Peggy was murdered between 1, that night, she, the night that Peggy was murdered, you know, it's between one thirty-two. Jeannie was also attacked, police believe, between 4.30 and 6. They think that Jeannie was studying the side office when someone approach, approached the front desk. They think he then came into the office that Jeannie was in, and they believe that he attacked her there. The cash drawer was again pried open at the scene of the crime. It's then that they believe that she was forced out of the building through the side office door. And around 6.30 a.m., a local farmer reports hearing a quick succession of shots. And at 7 a.m., the police receive calls from guests trying to check out of the hotel, but they're finding that the registration office door is locked. And just a few minutes later, after that, a school bus driver calls the police reporting a nude body on the side of the road. And it oh. will later be yep, confirmed to be um, Jeannie. So police were able to get into the office where they noticed $247 missing from the damaged cash drawer. And all of Jeannie's personal belongings, though, are still in the office. And there's different um, counties and different police districts involved in Jeannie's case. I mean, it's all messed up at this point because there's so many different locations. And then Peggy, since Peggy goes missing under the same circumstances, at one point someone calls it in and they're like, oh, we already got that. They called in Jeannie, Jeannie's murder, and someone the police are like, Oh, we got that, thinking it's Peggy. Oh. Yeah, like it gets all messed up. And then, you know, Jeannie's found in a different county than she was abducted from. And even though it wasn't that far, and it just things get all messed up at one point. And Jeannie, she'd been found in the nude with the exception of her socks and shoes. Her clothes would never be recovered. She had been shot three times with a 22. Jeannie had also been sexually assaulted. The DNA that would be found on Jeannie would later be used to make the match to the person who assaulted Peggy. So they're actually the first two to match. And both cases then go cold. The person that murdered them would be referred to as the Days in Killer. And their, their cases at this point are not linked to Vicki House murder. Vicki had been murdered two years earlier with a different caliber gun. There wasn't DNA testing involved yet. And he used I-65 to go up and down and to find these hotels. So once they do connect Vicki to the other two girls, they start to call him the I-65 killer. <laughs> so six days after the murders of Peggy and Jeannie, on March 9th, 1989, Edward Greenwell is arrested for a traffic violation in La Crosse, Wisconsin. Two weeks later, he is again arrested in La Crosse, this time for domestic violation and violation of a restraining order on two different occasions. And he's given 15 months probation. Less than a year later, on January 2nd, 1990, a woman's working nights as a days in clerk in Columbus, Indiana, when she's attacked. The unnamed woman was sexually assaulted and stabbed, and yet she manages to escape. The police create a composite sketch of her attacker, which descri- he was described as being six feet tall with greasy hair, he had green eyes, and a beard that was spotted with gray, and DNA would link her attack to Edward Greenwell, okay? because this now happens in the 90s in 1991 a woman is attacked by an unknown assailant in rochester minnesota she survives the attack and gives a similar description to the one provided by the woman who survived the attack the previous year her case would later be linked to edward greenwell by dna her attack occurred off of i-90 instead of i-65 and so far she's the only inter, um, victim to know to work that is um, off a different interstate and after <laughs> that Yep, there isn't any legal record of Edwards' actions for years. Until 1998, when he was arrested for violating a restraining order. Three days later, the case was dismissed, and that's the end of Edwards' court proceedings. He died on January 31st, 2013, of cancer. He was living in Iowa at the time of his death. The cases were first looked at for DNA in 2008. In 2010, the Kentucky State Police Department identified their attacker as a serial killer through the DNA comparisons. That's how they first realized they have a serial killer. And there were four times that four more times that Edward Greenwell could be linked to a sexual assault and robbery in which the victims lived to only the two, which I was able to find information on. So a few years to link the DNA and the assailant's already dead. Wow. Yeah. So he dies. And then while he's alive, they're starting to make the links between the women. And before they can make the link to Edward, he dies. Bastard. I know. I was like, oh, we could have got him. You know what
1: I mean? Wow. Uh, That's horrible.
0: It really was. And as you could tell, he drove a truck for a living and that he used his job to, you know, go undetected because nobody's expecting him to be there he's not a guest you know he, he would pull off two motels that he's no way connected to right yeah it's pretty fucking gruesome
1: well we had two fucked up cases yeah i'm just
0: glad that vicky Heath um was able to give him a fight even though in the end you know he still murdered her Oh, he was such a terrible human being, but okay. I just want to say, guess what I'm doing next time? Murder. Absolutely. <laughs>
1: <laughs> you got what is it?
0: road rage, deaths.
1: Oh, I would have never, yeah, I never thought about doing that.
0: Yeah, I got a couple of road rage incidences and um, I don't want to give it away, but one in which the um, guy gets caught in a very clever way. The victim was clever. It was, no, a satisfying. It. it was a little bit satisfying you do know <laughs> i do like that kind of stuff
1: right right yeah. well i don't know what my next one is because i sucked myself into this one i need to get away from this and stop googling it
0: well, i know after the road rage test i have to do something in michigan because like my last I i have not been in michigan
1: <laughs> <laughs> well uh, mine have been in michigan true And I have found, I want to let everyone know there is. I mean, I stumble upon just some jacked up crazy cases outside of Michigan. True. So you got to bring awareness to those too. So,
0: yeah, I'll be letting you know next week.
1: All right, Todd, we'll be here for it. All
0: right, cool. I will talk to you later.
1: All right, bye. Bye.